Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 29th day of July, 2023. I'm your host, Mark Call. And because this week is even more of a, uh, well, let's just say painful example of what happens when a nation gone insane completely comes off the rails, we're going to start with the latest events and then kind of work our way back and fill in some of the gaps. Because I guess you could say much of the nation that bought into the great big life is now literally cooking in what should be I told you so's. The largest power grid in once free America has declared another emergency alert now for the second straight day. PJM Interconnection LLC declared their emergency alert level one through Friday after excessive heat advisories and warnings cover much of their grid across 13 states from Illinois to New Jersey and over 65 million customers. Does anybody out there in leftist land still have some carbon fuel generators? Well, better fire them up. Said the grid operator, PJM issued these alerts to help prepare generators for the onset of intense heat. And just maybe after this latest potentially geoengineered event, got to convince the peons that you deserve this because you didn't sign off on the bogus green science, whether it's true or not. Temperatures may possibly, says Bloomberg, revert to the 5 to 30 year averages. But don't worry, Big Brother and his public-private partners will keep hyping the BS until you submit. What's interesting to your host here, folks, is that deep down in this article, a bit of truth emerges. How did PJM become so unreliable all of a sudden? Well, says Zero Hedge, PJM published a study earlier this year that showed that it was the alarming trend of state and federal decarbonization policies. Yep, there's that green energy BS again, across the grid that, quote, present increasing reliability risks during the transition, a transition that's expected to last forever, folks, because there isn't enough energy to replace what they're getting rid of. Anyway, all of this due to a potential timing mismatch. And how's that for a whopper? A timing mismatch is when your car runs out of gas because the tanker didn't show up at the gas station in time. But if Big Brother prevents that tanker from ever coming again, that's something entirely different. But back to the spin, the bureaucrats here are saying that there is potentially a problem due to a timing mismatch between resource retirements. Again, we're being forced out of natural gas, coal, and all kinds of other clean but oh-so-politically-incorrect fuels that actually provide energy when we need it. And we're having to shut down plants that would have worked well for years, too. But wait, the bureaucrats have still more. There are also other things like load growth and the pace of new generation entry. In other words, people are also being forced to buy electric cars and electric water heaters and electric stoves and all kinds of things that we already don't have the capacity to handle on the existing grid. Oh, yeah, and forget air conditioning during the summer. Gee, folks, has that ever been a problem before? Morons. I've got morons on my team. But hey, since we're on the subject, let's just pile on a bit because you know the propaganda is going to go into electric overload here in the next few days. There's a massive roll-on, roll-off automobile carrier ship ablaze off the Dutch coast. Shipping blog Tradewinds via Zero Hedge reported that Japan's K-Line is the opera of a boat called the Fremantle Highway. And according to their figure, there are almost 3,800 vehicles, including BMWs and Mercedes, about 489 of which are EVs, although earlier estimates had lowballed that and said, oh, maybe it's only 25 or so. 
Said trade winds, the figure is far higher than first estimated, yeah, and it appears to raise the likelihood that a lithium-ion battery in an EV either caused the blaze in the huge Fremantle Highway built in 2013 or added to its severity. Because if you've been paying attention, folks, you know that once an EV lithium battery starts on fire, it's damn near impossible to put it out. And it might tend to start other nearby EVs on fire, too. Reuters said that the Dutch Coast Guard claims the fire's origin is unknown, because that's what political correctness would have you believe. But Dutch broadcaster RTL said emergency responders were actually heard saying, quote, the fire started in the battery of an electric car. Oops. Quick Twitter to Facebook. You know what to do, said Nathan Habers, spokesperson for the Royal Association of Netherlands Shipowners to Reuters when transporting electric cars powered by batteries, which, when they catch fire, can't be extinguished with water or even by oxygen deprivation. Well, the story continues. One risk is thermal runaway during a fire that's hard to extinguish and can spontaneously reignite. And another risk is that governments are setting decarbonization targets for the transportation sector. Let's translate that making an already bad situation a whole hell of a lot, and I use that pun intentionally, worse. All of which means, as the Dutch Coast Guard puts it, the fire could still burn for days. All right, one more related story. Lithium-ion batteries, says a piece from the Epoch Times, have sparked hundreds of fires across just New York and San Francisco, left as paradises both, injuring dozens and resulting in the death of a few individuals and triggering worries about public safety. Hey, they're not really worried, folks. They just pretend to be. There's a bigger green and depopulation agenda here at work, remember? In New York, the number of fires caused by lithium-ion batteries has, quote, grown exponentially every year since 2021, said Fire Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh on July 21 during a public safety briefing. We are now, she said, unfortunately, seeing more and more of these kinds of extremely fast-moving, very powerful fires with some regularity in the city. As of this week, there have been 131 fires, 76 injuries, and 13 deaths caused by these lithium-ion batteries. And they're not just in cars, folks. They're also in exploding e-bikes nowadays. And that, says the piece, is a significant jump from just 2021 when there were 79 injuries and four deaths from such fires. In 2022, there were 142 injuries and six deaths. And the toll this year has already exceeded those of the past two years combined. And as you probably are aware, unless you get your news from the criminally negligent networks, multiple lithium-ion battery fires have made headlines this year. For example, the piece includes several stories about just people killed in Queens. On May 7th, four people died from a lithium battery fire that blazed through an apartment building in Upper Manhattan. San Francisco, too, has more than their share of problems, but perhaps not disproportionate to their share of political correctness. And on the left coast, Captain Jonathan Baxter, spokesperson for the SF Fire Department, in an interview with the New York Times, said it was the 24th fire in the city this year, linked to these rechargeable, oh-so-politically-correct batteries. And this is interesting, folks, but not at all surprising. It does go to show the importance of economics as opposed to political correctness. Cheap e-bikes, it says, became popular in New York City during the COVID-19 pandemic when public transit was <laughs> affected and orders for food delivery surged. And people who buy e-bikes often have to charge them inside their apartments, which poses a significant risk to other people sharing the same building. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, exactly what kind of stupidity the city of New York will impose upon their victims next. But I guess we do have this clue. The New York Fire Department advises people to never leave their charging e-bikes unattended. 
Like, what are they going to do about it if it spontaneously explodes into unextinguishable flames? At this point, as promised, I guess we'd better go back and review some of the other insanity of the week, more or less chronologically. There are a number of things that I would call uh, small stories in a way, but in another sense, they're harbingers. And certainly on that score, they're not that small at all. Here's one of them. The nation of India has issued a ban on exports of rice. Seems like they understand there's a famine coming. India's seen them before. So why would you want to export food that your own people might need? And uh, they've decided to cut it off. As a result, India's rice export ban, says the Daily Mail out of the UK, has triggered a buying panic, here's a shocker, at various U.S. supermarkets, causing the price of a 20-pound bag to surge from about $16 to almost 50 bucks in some stores. The South Asian country accounts for some 40% of world rice exports, and they ordered a halt to its largest rice export category, non-Basmati rice, on Thursday to calm their own domestic prices. And as a result, hey, it sparked fears of a global shortage. And surprise, folks, since it's been obvious for a while now that there is a global intent to cause a worldwide famine, that shouldn't surprise anybody that's been paying attention. Videos and reports shared on social media over the weekend showed Indian Americans in particular standing in long lines or panic-buying rice all over the country, places like Texas, Michigan, New Jersey, Alabama, Ohio, Illinois, and, of course, the People's Republic of California, which ought to be used to communism. There are more details in the story, folks, but the main point is we've seen what's going on. Fires at food processing facilities, attempts in places like the Netherlands to completely destroy and shut down their own agriculture industry. They want to kill all the cattle, destroy the ability to have fertilizers, and essentially make sure that ultimately people starve, whether they figured it out yet or not. And this is just one more clue. Here's another very telling indicator, and the fact that it didn't get much coverage is telling as well, but it was covered by Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Children's Health Defense Organization and their defender. The U.S. House of Representatives last Wednesday voted down an amendment that would have reinstated the good pilots who knew better than to take the Zyklon B injection, but were fired for, in fact, not taking the COVID-19 not vaccine. The vote was 294 to 141. Only 141 representatives, in other words, with even a modicum of intent. And interestingly, 83 rhinos joined the far-left Democrats to sink the proposal. And, oh, maybe it had something to do with the fact that it was Marjorie Taylor Greene who introduced it. The amendment was to a Federal Aviation Administration reauthorization bill. And as Marjorie Taylor Greene told Fox Business News, hundreds of pilots were forced out of their livelihoods over the past several years for their refusal to take the COVID vaccine. They were denied medical freedom of choice to decide, which is absolutely true, folks, whether they should take the experimental Zyklon B injection, she said COVID vaccine, which is obviously a misnomer, or lose their job. The news comes, quote, when the transportation industry is stretched to the point of dysfunction, unquote, already, said Joshua Yoder, president of the U.S. Freedom Flyers organization, who's opposed the mandate all along, especially since, if you pay attention, you know it was a violation of the FAA's own medical regulations. Said Yoder, pilots are essential to keeping the economy moving, and right there, folks, you know the answer. They don't want the economy to move. They want it to be destroyed. Pilots in the American public, though, he said, will continue to feel the negative effects of the unlawful mandates and the crippling policies of degenerative public-private partnerships. And as is evident by this vote, our country is being run by a uniparty. And it's time for the American people, he said, to put a stop to it. Bob Snow, a commercial pilot who took the Zyklon B injection under duress and then later suffered what so many have, related injuries, told the defender he believes the amendment was voted down out of spite. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
even if they don't necessarily agree on who or what the spite is directed at. But Snow also said, quote, I think there are a large number of elected representatives who supported the draconian COVID-19 measures enacted by various entities in the country and now feel the need to stick to their guns and ride the narrative, even though the measures ran the gamut from ineffective to outright criminal. And the Texas scorecard adds that members of Congress were, quote, pressured by the airline group and their lobbyists to vote against the amendment, arguing that the decision over rehiring those pilots should be left up to the individual airlines. Yeah, sure, folks. Just like the fascists always leave things up to the corporate entities that co-legislate with them. That way, each hand can blame the other. Remember, these same airlines received $25 billion in taxpayer bailouts as part of the COVID so-called CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security, what a misnomer bunch of BS during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was justified in part to keep airline workers employed. That is, if they would be good little slaves. Laura Cox, a pilot who helped found airline employees for health freedom, told Texas Scorecard that, quote, hundreds of airline employees and not just pilots were terminated at United Airlines if they were unsuccessful at navigating United's impersonal and discriminatory online system for obtaining a reasonable accommodation, unquote. And, yeah, Monica Dutcher, writing for The Defender, goes on to point out what your host has said is the real smoking gun when it comes to just about everything COVID over the last few years. And it's on top of what we often talk about when it comes to federal aviation medical regs. Federal law actually prohibits the mandating by employers of the vaccines distributed under emergency use authorization. Obviously, genocide trumps your rights, especially the right to life and to choose how you're going to end it or sustain it. The defender also notes that documents have revealed the FAA strongly recommended pilots to receive the so-called COVID-19 vaccines under the EUA, despite the agency's own regulations that prohibit pilots from taking any medications or therapies that have been on the market in general distribution for 12 months or less. So in other words, folks, I'll say it again. They violated their own regulations, and if they tell you it's all about the health of the American public, you know they're lying through their damn teeth. That goes for the airlines, too. They don't really care whether or not you die in a crash. They just want to make darn sure that they're immune from liability for it. And if they get caught, they'll do exactly what they have been doing. They'll hide it, they'll lie about it, and they'll cover it up. And if you're not mad about it, you're not paying attention. By the way, if you have to get on a commercial carrier airplane or allowing those you love to do so in an environment like this, well, you're playing Russian roulette to boot. Sure, most people make it, but virtually none of them understand what's really going on. And since I'm certainly being critical of the public-private partners masquerading as airlines, this is important background, in January 2023, the story tells us, a class action lawsuit was filed in the Circuit Court of Cook County, Illinois, Chicago area, against United Airlines by various furloughed and fired employees, including pilots, flight attendants, and mechanics who alleged wrongful termination. United Airlines previously, in April, a year earlier, 2022, had fired 232 employees who refused to take their Cyclone B injection, and the plaintiffs alleged that the airline had, quote, used deception, discrimination, psychological manipulation, and physical isolation to, quote, force employees under threat of termination to protect participate in a dangerous social and medical experiment. They also alleged that they were harassed in an attempt to force them to, quote, submit to an injection of an unknown substance of, <laughs> and this is an understatement now, isn't it? Questionable efficacy. Yeah, folks, that was back when it was still called a conspiracy theory by the liars in the waste-stream media. Now we know it's negative efficacy because you're far worse off if you buy into it and take the Zyklon B than if you simply said, hey, 
I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I think I'll let my immune system survive. And that suit, even though it's still in its infancy when it comes to legal machinations, isn't even the first of its kind, triggered by the anti-constitutional, inhuman, and certainly in violation of all medical ethics, vaccine mandates. Quote, the continued downstream carnage, said Joshua Yoder, from the COVID-19 shots is not just leaving pilots unable to work while killing others. It's also still punishing those who chose not to take an unconstitutionally mandated experimental biologic by not allowing them to return to work after wrongful termination, unquote. And now Congress not only basically says F you to America, but they're telegraphing their move. They're going to do it again, folks. And don't you for a second expect otherwise. On then we go to the World War III front, which in a lot of respects turns out to be another manifestation of the very same attitude. We'll start with this piece. I've seen it in several places at this point. A gigantic explosion took place over the weekend at the Shang Feng military base in Taiwan, where authorities described the event as a, quote, Chinese sabotage in advance of invasion. The situation is certainly volatile, and a number of people are said to be dead and injured. And the ammunition dump that was destroyed turns out to have been the primary ammo supply for Taiwan's military, which means if China decides to take advantage of the Biden Fuhrer's incompetence, and maybe the fact that he's obviously bought and paid for, Taiwan couldn't fight for much longer than a week before they'd run out of ammo and have to pull a Ukraine. And in the capital city of Taipei, the evidence is clear that people are terrified. Streets are literally empty, as if an air raid was taking place, which is certainly a very real possibility going forward. Not like they haven't been executing drills for quite a while anyway. From there, let's move to stupid pet tricks. But wait, in this case, we're talking about America's wannabe Gestapo. I don't mean the FBI. They're the full-fledged variety. But rather their adult little brother, the unconstitutional ATF. And this one might even be funny if it wasn't so illustrative. No, you can't see the picture, but it's easy enough to describe. The tweet, as Zero Hedge says, comes from the Austin ATF office. That's the Anti-Constitutional Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco und Firearms, which their very existence is all about infringing. And they say they were out on the range today with special guests from our local U.S. attorney's offices. And a number of obvious questions are raised, like, is it the blind leading the blind or the anti-constitutional leading the evil? Turns out that the picture raised quite a stir because it shows that the people charged with gun safety and making sure that the Second Amendment is gang raped are blithering idiots when it comes to elementary firearms handling. The picture in the tweet shows an ATF agent in full battle kit, evidently loading a magazine, and it looks long enough they certainly wouldn't want the peons to have this one standing right in front of a dreaded assault rifle laying there on the table. And the idiot has the thing pointed right at his nuts, his gonads, his privates, and uh, yeah, it's elementary firearms 101. And if I had an eight-year-old son that did this, folks, he would need remedial training. <laughs> As Zero Hedge notes correctly, and literally hundreds of people tweeted critically about, this could be interpreted as visual evidence that some, at least, of the ATF agents under the Biden regime have no idea about basic firearm safety. Notably, even the agent responsible for socialist media, who took the photograph and failed to recognize the obvious, unbelievable lapse in elementary gun safety. Twitter users mocked the photo, saying, quote, photographic proof the ATF shouldn't be allowed anywhere near firearms. 
Perhaps the most descriptive tweet came from the Federal Affairs Director of Gun Owners of America, who said, quote, The fact that the Houston branch of the ATF not only took, but posted a photo of an alleged agent blatantly ignoring or not even knowing basic firearm safety is a reflection of the agency's ineptness. While ATF may be tasked with enforcing federal gun control, their staff obviously have no understanding or even respect for the basic rules of firearm safety. Gun owners have always known that the anti-gun movement knows nothing about the firearms they want to ban, but to post it on Twitter is a new level of stupidity. <laughs> and the gun blog Truth About Guns said, standing in front of the loading table with firearms pointed at your junk is Gun Safety 101 for the distinguished agents of ATF HQ and ATF Houston in particular. But remember, if a federal firearms licensee makes so much as a single typo, his ticket gets pulled. Your tax dollars at work. Oh, yeah, just in case we have some leftists from CNN here listening, or more likely federal bunglers or instigators of one form or another, the simple elementary rule is you always treat every gun as if it was loaded. You don't even sweep it across somebody's body, much less point it at them, even if you're holding it and just checked it like you should have and know it's unloaded. <laughs> and says another tweeter, that includes guns sitting on tables, like the one pointed at that idiot's dick. And I did have to include that story today, folks, because basically it's going to show you the kind of people who simply aren't going to understand everything else we're going to talk about today. Oh, yeah. And speaking of idiot pet tweets, I saw this one after I'd already decided on how to introduce the show today. Hillary Clinton is at it again. She tweeted, quote, hot enough for you. Thank a MAGA Republican or better yet, vote them out of office, along with a graphic of alarmist climate headlines. And the responses said Tyler Durden for Zero Hedge were instantly hilarious like this one. Don't worry, Hillary, where you're going. It's much hotter. And added another, yeah, you just might want to try to get used to the heat. Your host can't help but think, hey, gee, the Biden Fuhrer absconded with the Oval Office over two years ago now. Why isn't non-existent man-made global warming fixed by now? Or do we have to conclude that maybe hell really did freeze over? Who knows? Could even be because they outlawed fossil fuels. We'll wrap up the segment with this story, courtesy of the Epoch Times, which says that when Judge Terry A. Doherty heaped particular score on the FBI for their interference with the 2020 presidential election and froze government-led speech policing, which, among other things, they used to suppress the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop from hell story, even he wasn't aware of efforts that are perhaps even more egregious, uncovered recently by the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. And it goes even beyond the feds quashing the laptop from hell story. Not only did the FBI itself bury it, but as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story is almost a case study in how the mass public-private surveillance and censorship regime operated to advance its own anti-constitutional political interests. In this case, installing the senile bribe-taking Biden Fuhrer, electorate be damned. What we now know, says the story, and seen in its broader context, the government-driven effort to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop from hell story is firmly now understandable to have been one leg of a concerted, long-running campaign led by the U.S. security state to protect the Biden crime family through obstructing investigations into their alleged corruption and almost undeniable criminality and to protect itself by covering up the obstruction. 
We know, courtesy of the Missouri v. Biden case and Judge Dowdy's memorandum, that the FBI regularly engaged in meetings with socialist media companies directly and alongside other government three-letter agencies convened by CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, with the supposed aim of helping those companies combat disinformation. Now, folks... We know that what they were really combating was the concept of free and fair election. And the committee notes that the FBI participated in over 30 such illegal meetings in the nine months preceding the rigging of the 2020 election. And after the FBI had gained possession and authenticated the laptop from hell. There's a whole lot more treasonous detail in the story, folks, but the bottom line is that the FBI shut up at least one official who might have disclosed the truth about the laptop and then instituted a policy not to speak the truth about the story at all. Judge Dowdy said prior to these disclosures that he found that the Bureau's failure to alert social media companies that the Hunter Biden laptop was real and not Russia, Russia, Russian disinfo was particularly troubling, and as a result, millions of U.S. citizens didn't hear the story prior to the November 30, 2020 election. And here we are, well over two years later, into a coup by an unelected, tyrannical regime. Traitorous Jack Smith, in true Soviet style, is engaged in a pogrom against the actual elected winner of that election. Not one of the real criminals has even been indicted, and they're brazenly doing it all over again. Which takes us to the break, and we've got a lot more right after this. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I am again your host, Mark Hall, and I want to start this one off with another one of those stories that's not only a sign of the times, a harbinger, if you will, but also an indicator of what's happening that people just simply aren't paying attention to. Yeah, this one is a lot bigger than it seems. This comes from Zero Hedges coverage, and it says that not satisfied to confine their green meddling to gas stoves and gas generators. In other words, folks, LP and natural gas are some of the cleanest fuels on planet Earth, but the fact that they're very abundant in the United States and also relatively, therefore, inexpensive is the real reason the regime wants them gone. The central planners in the Biden regime, White House, now want to raise the price of water heaters by imposing new technology requirements on manufacturers. In other words, folks, yet again, they're going to gang rape the Constitution, the very concept of free enterprise and the ability of consumers and producers to deal with one another without meddling by Big Brother. And as the founders once knew, and Adam Smith pointed out, provide better products at lower prices. Well, the point is to provide no products at prices you can't afford. 
On Friday, the unconstitutional, their term, but it's correct, Department of Energy, and it's actually just the opposite, it's the Department of the Destruction of Energy nowadays, proposed new so-called energy efficiency standards that would in fact require electric water heaters this time, remember you're not going to be allowed to have natural gas ones when they get their way, to come equipped with heat pump technology, and gas heaters would be required to use condensing technology. These standards, they say, would take place in 2029, but guess what, folks? Since the standards are already out there and being mandated, that means that manufacturers will have to start dealing with it, and uh, that means shutting things down essentially immediately. Noting that water heaters and heating accounts for about 13% of U.S. residential energy costs, the Energy Department claimed these new dictates would save consumers over 11 billion bucks annually on their energy and water bills. What a crock. While reducing carbon dioxide emissions, booga, 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 which don't matter for squat if you actually understand real science, by some 500 million metric tons over the next 30 years, which is several lifetimes the way they've got it worked out. Today's actions, and I'm quoting, together with our industry partners and stakeholders, how's that for a communist buzzword you're intended to get used to by now, improve outdated but, of course, unconstitutional efficiency standards. If we had a free economy, there would be no such thing, mandated by Big Brother, for common household appliances, which pretty soon won't be all that common, which is essential to slashing energy bills. You know what will also do it? Slashing the numbers of American consumers by making sure they can't afford any energy, much less appliances that use it, and cutting harmful bullshit carbon emissions, said Energy Secretary Foreign-Born Jennifer Granholm. Quote, this proposal, Achtung, reinforces the trajectory of consumer savings <laughs> that formed the key pillar of Bidenomics, a.k.a. a command economy where we command the peons to live in poverty, if they live at all. The counterpoint comes from Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky, who just happens to have two engineering degrees, notes Zero Hedge, and has also removed his Kentucky ranch entirely from the power grid. I guess he can see things that some of us here have been talking about for quite a while. And he regularly shares his clever innovations online. And here, folks, he nails it. And this is the point of spending so much time on the article, both the engineering and the free market economics. Quote, these products, said Massey, already exist in the free market. Consumers can and should decide whether the upfront cost of a heat pump water heater is worth the possible long-term savings. And he notes, in many cases, the monthly savings never make up for the upfront cost of the equipment. Why is that particularly important? Well, in warmer weather or climates... Heat pump water heaters might save energy, but they make less sense in northern climates because they have to extract heat from the surrounding air, warm air that your furnace will have to work harder to replace. So there's no free lunch when it comes to these water heaters in the winter. Some water heater manufacturers, like Giant Ream, immediately moved to endorse the new socialist regulations because that giant company stands to benefit from new regulations that would force smaller, weaker competitors to spend lots of money they can't afford on R&D to meet the green BS standards, or better still, just go out of business. And that would lead to, well, exactly what Big Brother's public-private partners always want, government-sanctioned monopolies. And that would enable them to do what monopolies always do, which is, uh, well, you know it, unless you work for the regime. One of the competitors, tankless water heater maker Renai, has called the new standards, quote, technologically impossible and warned, correctly, your host would add, that they lead to a narrower range of choices, maybe very narrow, for consumers. 
And the regime did confirm the latest unconstitutional, tyrannical idiocy. A reporter asked Corrine Jean-Pierre just how many more home appliances that Americans will have to get rid of, replace, or never be able to use anymore because of new regulations, saying, quote, so far from this administration, sick, we've seen them go after gas stoves, air conditioning units, and regulate refrigerators, washing machines, dishwashers, now water heaters. Just how many more home appliances will Americans eventually have to replace because of of these regulations to which KGP replied <laughs> don't worry they won't take effect until 2029 but the hammering of course has already started they are of course destroying rights and freedoms on every front including an old one that we're almost getting used to but they're getting sneakier about it this comes from zero hedge via the gun owners of america who notes that the senate socialists masquerading as democrats are now attempting to sneak an authorization of another outdated gun control law that of course is counterproductive to the extreme into the must pass ndaa how many times have we seen this of late the national defense authorization act aka the u.s military budget this time it's the 1988 abomination called the Undetectable Firearms Act. I'm going to contend that the details are less important than the object. Ultimately, we know what that is. Complete gun prohibition amongst the peons so that Big Brother can do whatever they want with them. But it's also, as Thomas Jefferson and the founders warned, to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. Typically, that's involved using things like the Commerce Clause and the idea that you peons, if you engage in commerce and you use almighty fiat bucks, which are an abomination to the creator anyway, and the Constitution, well, that means you've entered into our realm. You're subject to our jurisdiction. We can do whatever we want with you. We'll not only infringe, we'll get you to waive your rights to own something before we even allow you to uh, <laughs> pretend you're purchasing it with that insidious yellow slave form you've probably seen, which takes us straight here. What about those who don't, who know better? Answer, well, that's what abominations like this are for. We have to come up with some other way of roping them in. Anybody still remember when guns were private property? You could buy them, sell them, even give them to your son. But not if you're a slave and they're serial numbered and registered. But still, there are other ways of avoiding the trap. Big Brother calls them loopholes. We called them freedoms back when we had them. Because maybe they build these things for themselves. Don't even engage in commerce. Well, what then? Aha! We come up with some justification. And as GOA notes, the act itself not only hinders innovation in the firearms industry, which is, of course, subject to the jurisdiction thereof because they take the mark, but the potential for the weaponization of this law, and that's the intent, folks, is huge. Similar to how we've seen the 1934 National Firearms Act weaponized to attack first Things that the military or militia would obviously have, sound suppressors, full auto weapons, and so on. In other words, weapons of war. They've turned that on their head. And more lately, to attack pistol braces, bump stocks, and the ATF's illegal gun registration. Typically, says the story, these substitute amendments, like the one they're using here, are used for fixing grammar or spell checking. But it's also a way to try to get a law into the final bill and the text without actually having people be aware of it much less voting on it. This is not only how sausage is made, it's how evil advances, quietly, stealthily, and with the same clear intent. Here's another example of almost the same insidious process, a different mechanism, but the same goal. This piece comes from Zero Hedge 2, 
submitted by Goldfix and authored by Michael Lynch. It's entitled, Why Was the U.S. Treasury's Silver Eagle Mandate Not Honored? Well, we know the answer, because the law is for peons, not for three-letter government agencies that don't bother with the Constitution to begin with. In this case, though, remarkably, the U.S. Mint actually is in there, Article 1, Section 8, under the authority of Congress. The piece begins by quoting the U.S. Liberty Coin Act, which says, Notwithstanding any other provision of law, the Secretary, meaning the Secretary of the Mint, shall mint an issue in quantities and qualities that the Secretary determines are sufficient to meet public demand. Well, what? Among other things, American Silver Eagles, or ASCs, a one-troy-ounce silver coin produced by the U.S. Mint, and it's the primary bullion investment for many small investors in America. And the piece begins by noting that ASC investment is substantial. There have been over 619 million such coins bought since the project began, valued at over 15 billion bucks. And they happen to contain 17 times more silver than all the registered silver backing, which maybe not saying that much, that constitutes the entirety of the Crimex, a.k.a. Comex, silver trading market. Okay, well, folks, we know it's the paper silver trading market. The U.S. Mint says the story is bound by that Liberty Coin Act, Statute 99-61, to meet market demand of these ASC coins. And until recently, you can guess about when that might have happened. Yeah, if you're going to steal elections, why not screw the rest of the law, too? The Mint dutifully complied with the law regarding production volumes. Over nearly four decades, the Mint managed to overcome significant challenges by increasing production over 450% between 2007 and 2016 and substantially increasing production even during the COVID-1984 induced supply chain disruption in 2020. But in February 2021, a grassroots movement called Silver Squeeze commenced on socialist media with the group investing in a multitude of silver products, including the Silver Eagle coins. With the result that increased demand for the coin drove market premiums as high as 30%, which is incredible, folks, far above typical silver or gold coin premiums. Over the following eight months through September 21, there was minimal production increase from the mint, despite the continued coin premium pressure. On September 24th of that same year, 2021, the director of the Mint, David J. Ryder, resigned. And his replacement, (laughs) you can guess, can't you? An appointee of the Fourth Reich, Ventress Gibson, who immediately cut Mint coin production by about 50%, from an average of 2.6 million coins monthly to just half that, 1.3 million, which caused coin premiums to soar even more to as high as 75%, more than six times the typical market rate. Well, the rest of the story, as you would say, is history here. The Mint's coin production over the 21 months since the uh, Biden plant is the lowest since 2018, and only a small fraction, just over a third of the Mint's prior production back in 2015. And the restricted production has occurred even though coin premiums have been at record highs for three and a half years. Kind of begs the question, right? Why, oh why, would the Mint want to discourage people being able to buy silver coins? Hmm, I guess you can guess, right? The Mint, though, is in violation of the law by restricting production below demand. And as a result, investors have wasted or paid about a third of a billion dollars more in excess costs to try to buy production from the Mint. And that's money they won't have otherwise to buy silver. More importantly, small investor demand, and I think this is the real point, right, is not being met. 
Analysts estimate that investor demand is about 270 million ounces greater than supply. So small investors have been deprived of about $7 billion of American Silver Eagle coins. And yeah, if you think about it, that certainly helps Big Brother and those that are public-private partners to keep the silver market from completely imploding before it's time, right? They asked the question, I think it's already been asked and answered, why would the mint's production of silver eagles be at a five-year low during a period when coin premiums have been at their highest ever? Answer, we're talking about a premium over paper, or in this case, vapor. Says the author, it's a simple question, and it's time to ask Ventress Gibson and, of course, Janet Yellen that question under oath, as if, folks, being under oath is going to prevent them from doing what, you know, blankety-blanking well, they're going to. From there, we're going to go to a bit more economics that ultimately makes a very similar point. This one, too, comes from Zero Hedge and Tyler Durden, and it's about commercial real estate, or CRE markets, and nobody understands where the bottom is, is the headline. Starwood Capital Group's Barry Sternleck recently told Bloomberg's David Rubenstein about the ongoing crisis in the CRE, or commercial real estate sector, equating it to a Category 5 hurricane, and he cautioned, it's sort of a blackout hovering over the entire industry until we get some relief or some understanding of what the Fed's going to do over the longer term. The biggest problem currently in the CRE space is sliding office and retail demand. I hope you're sitting down, folks. In downtown, read this as socialist, very politically correct, cities. And you couple that with high interest rates, there's a disaster looking for building owners. According to Morgan Stanley, the elephant in the room is a massive debt maturity wall of CRE loans that totals half a trillion bucks in 2020 and over $2.5 trillion over the next five years. And here's the key quote from the piece in response to a question about why the rise in interest rates is so dangerous to the CRE sector. When you talk about these large structures, says the respondent, John Fish, especially in New York City, you got all these buildings out there, almost 100 million square feet of vacant office spaces. It's staggering. And you say to yourself, well, right now, we're in a situation where those buildings are about 45, 55, 65 percent maybe occupied, depending upon where they are. And all of a sudden, the cost of capital to support those buildings has almost doubled. So you've got a double whammy. You've got occupancy down. Thank you, COVID-1984 pandemic and Zyklon B. And he didn't say that, your host did. But again, it's part of the reason why nobody that's been paying attention wants to be in places like downtown New York City. So the value is down and there's less income coming in. And the cost of capital has gone up exponentially. So you've got a situation where timing has really impacted the development industry substantially. And the other problem is that the capital markets nationally have frozen because it seems nobody understands value. We can't evaluate price discovery, he says, because very few assets have traded during this period of time. And hey, guess what? You know the reason why. So as a result, he says, and this is key, nobody understands where the bottom is. And let me kind of cut to the chase here and suggest, you know what? If everybody knows, everybody with a brain, that is, that you don't want to be in the major cesspool cities, given what's coming, guess what that means if you're stuck with a great big expensive office building and a huge loan that you already can't pay and the interest rates are going up to boot? This next item, folks, is a story from one of my favorites, Chris Martin, who's probably one of the best cycles and economic analysts out there with an Austrian bent to boot. It comes via the burning platform, and it's called the CBDC Crisis of 2025. 
And undoubtedly, begins Martin Armstrong, this entire scheme of digital currencies will be the death of Western civilization. I guess he cuts right to the chase, too. The founding fathers prohibited direct taxation, which was repealed during the Marxist movement towards creating the income tax. We're talking 1913, if you recall. Once the income tax was imposed and Big Brother put in place the enforcement arm, the Federal Reserve, the government then needed to know everything you did, which is why the Founding Fathers prohibited any form of direct taxation. Now, even a journalist, if he fails to comply with the demands of Big Brother, is targeted by the IRS. This allows them to go after anyone, unless you're the son of a senile president, who in fact does as he's told, in order to keep being the son of a senile president. So yes, says Martin Armstrong, this will be the worst currency crisis in human history, and it will be the final nail in the coffin of freedom. So again, Martin Armstrong is coming right out and saying it. He includes an article from uh, decades ago about how repudiation of the Czechoslovakian currency stunned the Czech populace in the Soviet-dominated state. The Prague government, has said, announced Saturday sweeping monetary reforms and abandoned its old currency system, establishing a new Czech crown based on the Russian ruble. And it declared all state loans and securities issued since 1945 at the time to be worthless. Back to the piece, this will most likely, says Martin Armstrong, cancel all currencies after the 2024 U.S. election, or whatever they call it. It'll need to be coordinated, he said, and don't worry, they've been planning on it for a long time, to prevent capital flight. Whatever's in bank accounts or brokerage accounts will be re-denominated in the new digital currency. And the IMF, as you might guess, is pushing hard to replace the dollar with its own version. The likelihood of the collapse of the IMF and world institutions will probably arrive, suggests Martin Armstrong and his computer models, in 2031. Big tech will, of course, comply. They know where their bread is buttered. They're already stripping us of our freedom of speech. This will become imperative to oppress all freedom in the hopes that they can establish this new totalitarian state, which is the dream of Klaus Schwab and his band of merry thieves at the World Economic Forum. So you can expect the Internet, and it's already being done, to be highly monitored and restricted. The point of investments post-2024 will be to hold on, suggests Armstrong, to tangible assets, things that are real, because those, he says, will make this transition from one currency to the next. And as far as bail-ins being applied to people's brokerage accounts, yep, the answer is yes. That was already done by Judge Martin Glenn, who presided over MF Global's bankruptcy and created the first bail-in without congressional authority. He was the first one, the piece notes, to engage in forced loans by abandoning the rule of law to help the banksters and protect Corzini from losses by taking client accounts to cover MF Global's losses. This, says Armstrong, is no different from what we saw in Cyprus. Remember the bail-ins there years ago. He simply allowed the confiscation of client funds when, in fact, the rule of law should have been that the banksters were responsible and MF Global's losses, and it should have been reversed. Never should the client's funds be taken for MF Global's losses to the New York banksters. And he didn't spell it right, but uh, he's trying to be as polite as possible, I suspect. Anyway, says Armstrong, you will have no opt-out avenue. That is the intent, folks. Taxes and commerce will all be digital, which is why they're pushing 5G in order to create instant transfers and enable them to replace any and all cash transactions. Uh, Armstrong won't say it because he has a slightly different bailiwick. I will.
You know what it is. It's the mark of the beast. Regarding inheritance, the left is already set to push behind the curtain that upon death, everything should belong to the state, which is, of course, one of the communist manifesto planks. I fear this will only unleash civil war, says Martin. Nevertheless, there's a crazy leftist in Australia proposing exactly that. It's unfair for one person to have large wealth and another nothing. Consider, he says, therefore, putting all your assets and accounts in one's children's names now to avoid this possible scenario, at least as far as it can be avoided, because otherwise it carries tremendous risk. It all depends, he notes, on your country. When I bought a house 30 years ago, I simply added my children's names. Today you can't do that, and it becomes taxable to them. So while we can't rule out, he says, tactical nuclear weapons, the risk of an EMP attack, too, will be devastating. That would wipe out the economy and take down the Internet. Uh, your host would note, so would a cyber attack that accomplishes the same thing. And it looks almost inevitable to me, folks, that eventually they're going to want to bring down the power grid, at least so far as the peons are concerned. The prospects, says Armstrong, of whatever you have in an account, well, it could simply vanish. And that's one primary reason, he says, I'm against the whole crypto CBDC or Central or central bank digital currency agenda, because in times of war, an EMP could devastate an adversary. And I think he says this simply warns that you should have, and uh, this is not news either, but your host has been talking about it for as long as I've been doing radio, some old silver coins in the U.S. Those would be the kind that predate the evil year 1965. Let's close today with another one of those quick stories that really tells us just exactly uh, what George Carlin used to point out. There's a big club, and you ain't in it. But ironically, crackhead whoring sons of an illegitimate senile uh, fake president seem to be. While the DOJ continues to run cover for the Bidens, says another piece here from Zero Edge, a new report from the Insider reveals yet another shady-looking transaction, to put it mildly, involving the so-called first family. When Joe Biden promised on the campaign trail from his basement in 2020 that there'd be an absolute wall between his family's private business and his official duties. Yeah, guess which side of it he's on, along with Big Brother. It appears that was yet another lie because the identities of several buyers of Hunter Biden's so-called art have turned out to be uh, friends. One buyer whose identity is being hidden still spent $875,000 on 11 different Hunter Biden artworks, while another one received a direct benefit from the Biden White Whorehouse. The buyer has been, that buyer has been revealed as Elizabeth Hirsch Naftali, an L.A. real estate investor and so-called philanthropist who's been extremely influential in California socialist Democrat circles and has given extensively to the Biden regime, the DNC, and so forth. She even hosted a fundraiser headlined by the heels in the air vice president. There's a lot more detail in here and, of course, a whole lot more that you're not going to be allowed to hear. But uh, guess what, folks? Again, there's a club. You ain't in it. And the key here is to understand that it's going to get worse from here. The economic situation has been designed to implode. We're seeing the implosion happen. There are more and more dates certain that are out in the near future. Will it be all at once or uh, <laughs> will it take a while to get there? Well, regardless, those that have eyes to see and have been paying attention already know where it's headed. You probably already even know what needs to be done. Hopefully you've already begun that process, but none of us honestly are ever either where we know we need to be or much less where we'd like to be. The question is, how much time do you have left and uh, how appropriate is it to start making all the moves that are necessary right now? 